Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show, I'm delighted to tell you that Material Matters will become three-dimensional this September. Yep, we're launching a brand new fair at Barge House Oxo Tower Wharf from the 22nd to the 25th of September, and it will frankly contain some wonderful things and brilliant thinking. Look out for an exhibition celebrating the upcoming monograph from the design agency Layer, for instance, as well as site-specific installations from the likes of Gallery Rupp and Form and artist Stuart Haygarth. There'll be exhibitors exploring the value of the materials we use and looking at subjects such as circularity and waste in particular, as well as a selection of fantastic makers, including Mixed Metals, Majida Clark and Living Object, to name just a few. Not only that, there'll be big brands there too, such as Scandinavian companies Foraform and Ragnars, as well as Hydro, the global recycled aluminium company, which will be holding a series of special talks aimed at architects and designers. And naturally enough, there's going to be a talks programme with speakers including Nigel Coates, Beth and Laura Wood, glass artist Christopher Day, Naomi Cleaver, the list goes on. Finally, Michael Marriott will be my guest for a live version of the podcast. It's going to be great. Oh, and it's also free. You just need to register by going to the visit page on the website materialmatters.design. That's materialmatters.design. There's also an Eventbrite link in the blurb that comes with this episode. Oh, so my guest this week is Simon Hassan. The designer made a name for himself when he graduated from the Design Products course at the Royal College of Art in 2008, with a collection of pieces made from queer buuli, or boiled leather, an ancient material that was used to make medieval armour. The pieces made quite a splash, and subsequently he worked on a number of projects, such as Craft Punk during the Milan Design Week in 2009, the Designer in Residence programme at the Design Museum, and the Vauxhall Collective. His work embraces different scales, from furniture to accessories, and more recently, he's collaborated with the likes of Quadrat, Another Country, Lin Lee and Chloe. Simon's work has received two Wallpaper Design Awards, and he has pieces in the permanent collections of the Crafts Council and the Fondazione Fendi. He taught for many years at the RCA, and is currently Furniture and Product Design Course Leader at London Metropolitan University. Simon, how are you? I'm great. A bit nervous. Are you? <laughs> But I'm, but I'm good. Don't be nervous. Everyone says that. I'm afraid of your searing, insightful question. Uh, yeah, that, that mm. won't happen. Don't worry. <laughs> so was that reasonably accurate? Yeah, it was. It was some references I've not heard for a while. Uh, quite, <laughs> you've done your research, haven't you? But it was, it was reasonably accurate. Well, we're going back, Simon. We'll be going back. Just in the tradition of the show, mm. and this really dates back from when it started, we like to try and give listeners some context. So we're talking over Zoom. And you are the first person I've ever spoken to whilst he's been on his bed, I have to say. So, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing this isn't your studio. You're at home. I wish. Yeah. I'm glad you said on the bed, not in the bed. I am well, on, yeah, on I the bed. I thought I'd be honest rather, yeah. than, uh, rather than illustrative. Well, let's cheat, Simon. What does your studio look like? Then talk about your bedroom, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I can do both. Uh, the studio is, a, I fell in love with it. It's my first studio. I've only ever had one studio and I was lucky enough to find it after the Royal College. So this is back in 2009. Right. Uh, when I had the Vauxhall Collective Commission, actually, I needed a place to work. And it came up and it's a late Victorian row of workshops that's just on the fringes of Arnold Circus. Shoreditch in London. Shoreditch, London. indeed, yeah. Shoreditch, just off Shoreditch High Street. 
the workshops were originally made as furniture makers workshops. So it's when Shoreditch was the heart of the furniture trade in East London and there were upholsterers and wood turners and what have you working out of these workshops. And the workshops were built as basically the social housing built up around Arnold Circus. And the workshops well, were say, part of that. The Boundary Estate was the first social housing, wasn't it, mm. really? And certainly in London. Like this little model village with the bandstand that was built from the rubble of the torn down slums, basically. That rubble was used to make the bandstand. There's shops, you know, now there's some lovely food and fashion stores. It's been well and truly gentrified. There's a Browns down the road, fancy coffee, but still the workshops remain, which is terrific. And the apartments are still there. Two schools are there. One of them still working. Um, so, you know, it's a lovely little enclave in the middle of Shoreditch, really. And what does your studio, what does it have in it? Full of Victorian charm, which I fell in love with then and <laughs> fall out of love with every year around about October, November, when it gets chilly. I share currently with a photographer, James Harris, and uh, an artist with an Icelandic name that's too difficult to repeat. So it's, you know, we have divided the space between three. It's got lots of leather, lots of wood, lots of photographs, and uh, some random bits and pieces. So it's got a lovely little workshop at the back. It's a brilliantly, you know, it's 150 square feet. You can make stuff, you can model and prototype and do small batches. So it's really perfect for what I need it for. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, very lucky to find something of that size back then because it's increasingly rare, particularly in Shoreditch. Mm. You know, prices have remained, you know, affordable and it's a rare gem, really. I'm very grateful to have it. Mm. I mean, I think the first thing we need to discuss is the material itself that you use. Now, did I mispronounce it in the... Uh, You'd have to ask a French native speaker. Yeah. We'll go with that. Yeah. We'll go with that. I mean, originally, right, it was a medieval process, a way of hardening leather to create armour. Exactly. I'm guessing it's a kind of cheaper, rather less effective armour than steel, metal or oh, whatever. I know. I mean, you know, they made cannons out of leather, which is crazy. Oh, did they? I did not know that. Leather cannons. I know that's a whole project. Mm. Can we talk about the process? So Quibri, you're right, it's a medieval armour-making process. It was also used for beer jugs, you know, wonderful powder kegs, things with wonderful names like blackjacks and bombards, uh. fire helmets, buckets, cannons, armour for horses, for soldiers. It was a process used to make industrial goods, essentially, you know, five, six hundred years ago. Chaucer refers to it in the Canterbury Tales. So it's got this amazing history with a French name that I think it was very common in southern France particularly, I believe. But even in England, it was known by its French name, translating as boiled leather or cooked leather. And basically, you can use a dry heat or a wet heat. So you boil it. There are ways of doing it in water, oil, wax, or a dry heat. So essentially an oven, you make a form, pack it with hot sand and bake it. Each gives you slightly different qualities and properties that enable you to do certain things. Do you use all those techniques? I played around with them a lot more when I was at the Royal College, when I was first working on it. I played with sand and played with microwaves and oil and wax, all of those things. But it's really about control and accuracy. It can go horribly wrong if you get the temperature wrong or the timing wrong. It basically becomes too brittle and unusable. So a dry heat is more gentle. I tend to use a mixture of dry heat and wet heat, basically. Dry heat's more gentle, a bit more controllable. Helps dry it quickly, obviously. Boiling is effective, but quite brutal. So I try and mix the two. Right. So with the dry heat, you have a kiln or you can use a domestic oven or how does that work? Uh, <laughs> I have done it in a domestic oven several yeah. times. Uh, <laughs> gets a bit warm, actually. The grill gets a bit hot, especially the elements come on. I made a hot box. I've got a meter cubed water tank with a big propane burner right. underneath. And I've also have basically made a big oven using room heaters and 
heat torches and uh, insulation foam. So it's very low tech. I was going to say, it's not a high tech process. In that it's case. not high tech. It's very low tech, true to the kind of RCA way of discovering your own process, really. But it works, you know, it works. Then I combine that more with tooling to get precision and accuracy when I need to. Mm. So this is what you graduated with, as you've alluded to, from the Royal College of Art in 2008. And I remember at the time, I think I was editing, well, I don't think, I know, I was editing Crafts magazine and was looking for people who kind of crossed over between design and craft. That said, it was probably a counterintuitive thing to be doing at that time. Technology was and, and still is the way forward, seemingly. Did you feel, when you first picked up the leather, did you feel you were swimming against the tide? Yeah, very much. Very, very much so. Even craft in general was sort of alien. I wanted to go into design because I was in love with the work of Marcel Wonders or Jürgen Bay or Helle Jongerus, you know, the, the Dutch designers all under the kind of droch umbrella, I suppose, if that's the right word for it. So what was it about those Dutch people then, Simon? What appealed? Oh, God, just the fearless experimentation, the reinvention of process, the reinvention of a technique or a material. And... I managed to find something which enabled me to do the same thing. And I was searching for something I, even before the RCA I actually started on the MA at St. Martin's under the very wonderful Simon Fraser. But I really wanted to go to the RCA. Jürgen Bay was about to start there, who was kind of a god to me, still is really. And I really wanted to be in that place where so I switched to the RCA. But it was Simon Fraser actually that turned me on to the C word. And I was like, craft, you know, I'm not sure about this. But it just stuck with me. And then at the Royal College, I discovered the process and it was alchemical. You take something in contemporary terms, you think of it as luxurious and refined and fairly sedate, fairly safe, fairly conservative world. And you do something bonkers like boil it or heat it, which any leather expert would tell you not to do because you'll destroy the leather, which to some extent is true. And it becomes something completely different. So suddenly, just by using heat alone, it has a whole other kind of set of possibilities. You open up new potential for that material. And I found that really magical, really al alchemical. Did somebody say to you, go and do something old with leather? Why <laughs> leather in the first <laughs> no, instance? No, that's a good question. So your, your earlier question, wasn't it? Your, your question was, did I feel like a fish swimming against the stream? Yes, very much so. Because at the RCA, then... You can do it still to a lesser extent now, but you chose your platform according to your, you chose the tutors who you wanted to learn from for one or two years. And I chose the industrial designer, Luke Pearson and Michael Marriott. I could have chosen something more conceptual or, you know, kind of slightly more left field, but I wanted kind of, I didn't have a problem dreaming. I had a problem, you know, grounding it in the real world. So I was on quite a grounded platform in some ways. So my colleagues, you know, had been working in studios doing industrial design or great furniture makers doing really beautifully resolved bits of furniture or whatever product design. And I was walking around with half cooked bits of leather and old books from the library. Um, so I always felt I was against the stream and I found the RCA quite a difficult environment to be in because it wasn't it was I was coming at it as a mature student yes I went when I was 30 so I had a whole other life so I was suddenly surrounded by you know younger people in shorts carrying cordless drills and I found that <laughs> really intimidating as well um, so yeah I really felt two years I was kind of swimming against the, the stream really but then you had this remarkable surge of interest when you left some of which I quoted back at you in the introduction. I'm interested, was it clear what you subsequently you could do with what you've been learning at the Royal College? When you're working on the project, there's such an intense environment, 
as I'm sure you can almost feel it when you walk into the studio there. I had such a love-hate relationship with the work. With your own work? With my own work. That's interesting. As a student, you're rarely told it's never enough. Right. Certainly at the RCA, it's never enough. Yeah, yeah. There's always more. Push it further, do more, change the form, make it bigger, change the scale, you know, make it more generous, as Ron Arad would say. Jürgen would say, look at the details. <laughs> Ron would say, make it bigger, you know. <laughs> so trying to navigate these opposing points of view. So at the end of it, you'd barely know what you think yourself. And so actually, when you exhibit it, you really don't know what on earth, how it will be re- received. I knew it was interesting. I knew it. no one else was really doing anything like that. It was one of five projects I presented in my graduation show. I made a set of, I think, nine or 11 vases using the process, which I paired with car paints as an ode to Heliongerus. I made two types of stool, one kind of for galleries, you know, hand-formed, hand-twisted, quite brutal, one much more carefully moulded with uh, tubular steel legs that were powder-coated. So one ostensibly for production, one ostensibly for a gallery. I did a radio, I did a very nice nutcracker, I did a furniture upcycling network. I did a lot of work, you know, but it's the leather that, as you pointed out, the leather is the thing that got noticed, got traction and got interest. So, you know, I think when you graduate, you really have to play the cards you get dealt. In that sense, you know, you, you follow the leads that come to you from there. And, and that was the thing that got, that got spotted. Yeah, you got dealt some, a really interesting hand in that case, because as I say, you did Craft Punk in Milan during mm. the Design Week 2009 with the likes of, I think, Peter Marigold was doing it, who's been on the podcast, yeah. War Edges, Glithero, Nacho Carbonell, I think Thomas Libertini. Thomas Libertini, Yuri Suzuki. Yeah. And subsequently, there was this explosion of interest in the design world in craft. It was kind of everywhere. For the next few years in Milan, everybody was making something on their stands or had, had usually a man in a boiler suit doing something, <laughs> upholstering something. Right? Or in shorts. Yeah, or in shorts, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you also did that project, the Vauxhall Collective, where you, you yeah. drove around the country. I did. Uh, looking at traditional crafts and produced a collection of objects as a result. Because I'm quite intrigued. I mean, A, what was it? But then where did you go and what did you learn? It was someone I met from the RCA show and uh, they were involved with the Vauxhall Collective. So it was a project for Vauxhall, the car company, not the region of London, to basically align Vauxhall with great British makers, theatre directors, performance artists, fine artists, sculptors, makers, that kind of thing. And I was asked to apply for this opportunity. It was a really great bursary to get some funding. And I was given the theme of the Great British Road Trip. So you simply had to submit a response to that theme. And it was not leather, which was great. So this is my first project, maybe my second project outside after the RCA. And it wasn't leather. But it was craft. It was craft, yes. Mm. It was about craft. And I proposed a road trip visiting, because at the RCA, I very much developed this interest in the crafts and the industrial systems that began to replace them and why and how that happened and that tension and that friction. Uh, I always, I still find really exciting. I started listening to a lot of Billy Bragg music and it was great. And, and I love that friction point between the, the, the kind of demise of one thing and the explosion of something new. And I love that tension. So what I did for the project was drive around in my Vauxhall Astra, of course. <laughs> great car. Uh, I wanted to visit the kind of birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution. So visited Colebrookdale to the Ironbridge Gorge Museum to look at the kind of birthplace of cast iron production. Some of the mills in Derby, around Derbyshire, um, Masson's Mills and Textiles Museum, see so the birthplaces of water-powered textiles production, Kellam Island and Sheffield. And then also visit 
Stoke-on-Trent, of course, to see you know the bottle kilns and visit the ceramics factories there. And then also look at the types of craft that they started to make redundant. So visited framework knitters' cottages or the Museum of English Rural Life down in the Weald and Downland Museum, I think, down there. Reading University had a very... Maybe that was a Museum of English Rural Life, I think, is at Reading University. Right. Which is a little resource, which is very nice. The Weald and Downland Museum in um, Sussex, I believe. So just visiting both of these kinds of contrasting environments, places, different architectures, different sounds, different smells, and just really wanted to synthesize these different worlds in in objects as the outcome. So I developed a little suite of furniture, a cabinet, some shelving, some stoneware vases, and a bench that could try to marry and synthesize these opposing worlds. So the bench was using cleft oak from a wood mm. cleaver from, you know, working in Buckinghamshire using coppiced oak, using a machine planed European oak top that's mortise and tenon joined. So it's mixing and craft and volume production processes. Same with the vases using slip cast stoneware and cast metal caps that was referencing uh, the beer flagons from, you know, days gone by, you know, the two-tone glaze, dark brown at the top and kind of natural stoneware at the, the the second half. So referencing these things, you know, very uncool things like heavy horses and amulets on, on Shire horses, you know, mm. horse brasses and that whole world of kind of slightly fusty, almost mythological items that were used and very much adorned the workplaces and the animals and the machinery of that, that time where you have superstition and mythology really rubbing shoulders with modernity i love that i listened to a lot of bjork then as well at the same time um so yeah then it all came together in in that collection of work for the Vauxhall collective and it's something that's kind of ran through your career this fascination of bringing craft together with mass production i guess there's that project you did in northampton called industrial makeshift where you produced 400 handcrafted objects that could be bought from a vending machine I know you told Icon in 2009 that you wanted to make people aware of where things come from and where they're made. And that isn't going to spread in a gallery. I was quite interested you weren't thinking about galleries for your work at that point. I was thinking about galleries, but the Vauxhall Collective Project, Established and Sons approached me, Established and Sons, when they had a gallery, approached me to take on some of that work for the gallery. And I didn't want it to go there. It felt almost too easy. That's interesting. <laughs> you wanted to make life hard for yourself. Yeah, God, I don't I ever. <laughs> it's all about the concept, Grant. I was from the RCA, for goodness sake. So conceptually <laughs> pure. And those pieces were designed to be produced in volume, not to go to a gallery. Right. <laughs> that didn't happen either, but it could have done. <laughs> you know, Establishing Sun's mainline. Yeah, absolutely. Gallery, not so much. Because for me, it was about how do you, as a designer, as a design student, I was reacting against this kind of, veneer of glossy shiny perfection that you see rolled out in milan um perfect finish perfect form i was wanting to respond to that was it glenn adamson that described you know the crafts as the aesthetic in opposition and i've always enjoyed that position the crafts have as being an, an opposing force to something and it's no less relevant today as it was 150 200 years ago Well, you wrote at the time and you said, it strikes me that the relationship between craft and design remains unresolved. Yes. Can we unpick that? What did you mean by that? (laughs) I still feel that designers have a foot in many different worlds. As a designer, you're a generalist. You don't really specialize in any one specific thing. You pick up and put down in a kind of magpie-like fashion, I believe. You're a generalist. It's a a phrase that Marcel Wanders used, actually, which has always stuck with me. And... Conversely, a craftsperson, you become a specialist in your craft, you know it inside out, you study it, you dedicate your life to it, and it's about 
achieving you know the best possible result with that material or process and i like the idea of approaching design in a craftsmanlike way so you have a dedication to an iterative process where you try and understand and express something through the work and for me that was about expressing a point of view on aesthetics and production and mass production and what the world around us might look like should look like in my in my mind and using crafts as a vehicle to try and express that as a designer really and not just keeping it in the silo of crafts which tends to make it expensive and sort of rarefied or going into a certain niche market i felt that designers your job is to design for a client or an industry or a customer put things out there that are affordable uh, accessible and you know have some sense of sort of, of of need and for me then that's the seesaw balance between working for a gallery which can be much more experimental and which you do you do work for galleries though, i you? do i do yeah uh, less driven by function <laughs> uh more driven by experimentation and striving for something which then might find its way into a production item because you've answered some questions that was the grand plan that was a theory but you know did it work out i don't know it's still going well, that was on that's going to be my next question <laughs> i mean did it work out for you personally and do you think that it has industry changed at all in the i don't know 13 14 years that you've been plowing that particular furrow in your introduction you know i was suddenly surrounded by people working with leather suddenly crafty references were going onto toasters and kettles and little leather tabs going onto certain other danish brands producing benches very much like mine i mean it's <laughs> things began to pop up right and I wasn't the only voice doing that then. I think when I was when I graduated, I, I, I feel that I was, you know, certainly the minority of voices. And then by the time you've met enough trend forecasters and you get repackaged as being part of something else that then gets bought by someone else as a expensive, you know, trend report, these things spread, which I guess is great because that was part of my plan. But you know, it, I'm not sure how sincere it is. Is it just the next marketing thing, or is it you know something that's slightly more profound? Mm. Well, I was going to ask that whether it's anything more than a. A yeah, fashion. A it fashion. was very fashionable, but whether it has any legs, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, the crafts have always gone in and gone out of fashion, I guess, you know, ever since Liberty were sort of producing handmade knockoffs with the look of a handmade finish, but they weren't really handmade, they were mass produced, you know, at Liberty. And it was a problem that William Morris had, you know, it's not a new, not a new problem. He got sick of pandering to the idle rich through his, his workshop. Not much has changed, but I do feel that now it becomes increasingly relevant and increasingly important with the way the world is that it's not just a marketing thing and it is a much more profound shift. You know, I'd love to, again, William Morris, you know, he did this great speech on the, the idea of a factory, you know, just imagining what a factory of the future in his mind would be like, you know, I don't think we quite have it. But in terms of provenance, scales of production, material responsibility, sustainability, you know, I think the crafts are still what we should be looking to. And maybe we just need a massive aesthetic shift. I don't know. You know, maybe our whole world is designed in the wrong way so that the things we surround ourselves with should be different, should be much more low-tech, should be much more crafted, much more handmade. But it's not an aesthetic shift, is it? It's a shift in consumption and the way we consume things, surely. Yeah, I guess so. But it's also has an aesthetic impact, doesn't it? You know, the world around us may need to look very different, probably should look very different in 50 years time, especially if we're going to have summers like the one we've just had. You know, our, our housing stock is completely wrong. <laughs> you know, how bold will people be? How strident will people be? Yeah, it's endlessly fascinating. And I don't have the answers, but I think it's right to ask the questions. Did all that early publicity, did that come as a shock to you, I wonder? 
Yeah, massive shock. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. And I thought I was quite well placed for it, given that my background before being becoming a designer was in advertising and marketing, <laughs> which, um, you know, I got sick of selling sweets to kids. Which we will come on we to. Will, yeah, oh, yeah, great, yeah. Great. Can't, can't, can't <laughs> wait for that bit. But it was a shock. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. I knew Thompson was special, actually, at the RCA show um, when this guy started talking to me. And I thought, I know you. I know your face. Who are you? And I was running through, I actually had my laptop open. I was emailing people saying, come and look at my stuff. I was emailing, you know, Vessel Gallery and that kind of thing, saying, come and look at these vases. And I was like, looking for faces and they've got, oh God, it's High Spacker. And I had his face on my, had his face on my computer, at which point he- Co-founder of Druk, who is surely- Exactly. Yes, must be one of your, your gods, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he was there and uh, he came around and chatted to me and there, unbeknownst to him, maybe even still now, his face was on my laptop, which had been very embarrassing <laughs> had he seen his face on my laptop. But yeah, he bought some work, which was amazing. And that was like, okay, that's special. That means something. Mm. And yeah, it was a surprise. And then I was asked by Janice Blackburn to show at Sotheby's small show, Huge Talent, I think was the name of the exhibition. And then, you know, Met Yourself, Corinne Julius, Libby Sellers, and, you know, all the kind of movers and shakers in London at the time and beyond. And then got a call from Amber Meadow, who was director of Design Miami or maybe co-founder of Design Miami at the time. Fendi were a major sponsor of Design Miami saying, you know, we've seen your work. Fendi are a sponsor. They're interested in what you do with leather as it's a material they use a lot. Do you want to, do you want to come and show at this exhibition we're doing called Craft Punk? And that, that just kind of blew the lid off everything. It was crazy. Amazing. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't expecting that. It was definitely a moment in time, no question. It was a moment in time, wasn't it? It was a champagne supernova. It was amazing. And also economically, it was 2009, 2010. So the global economic downturn was biting. You know, I graduated in 2008 into the biggest recession for many, many years. It was interesting. But, you know, at Craft Punk, you know, I met Sylvia Fendi and amazing designers who I was in awe of, Julia Lohman. And actually, she, she declined to, to do it. Um, but Peter and... Sarah Van Gameren and, you know, Glithero, um, amazing. Met Murray Moss, Paul Johnson, Wendell Castle, Enzo Mari, I believe. It was amazing. Yeah, amazing. And so after you had that surge of publicity, how did your work develop after that? I mean, I have spoken to designers who've left college, got loads of press, and then two or three years later, when the intention has moved elsewhere, have found things quite difficult. Did you have to find a, a keel, a more even keel to work around? Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit older, you know, I was in my early, early 30s. So if I was 23, 24, it might have been a bit more difficult to handle. I always felt there was an inverse relationship to, actually, I believe, I know there is an inverse relationship between income and publicity. Because if you're doing interesting work, it gets written about. If you're doing boring work, it gets bought <laughs> or sold. <laughs> yeah. So I was getting loads of attention, loads of exhibitions, loads of press. I was selling work, you know, through amazing places. But... I wasn't earning much money at all. And that's the smoke and mirrors. Certainly around that time, I do hope it's improved a bit, but that's the smoke and mirrors of working as a young, hot designer and working with galleries. For some reason, I had the belief that you start working with a gallery and you're made, your work gets sold and, you know, all that stuff. But no, it's all speculative, really. I started working with a gallerist in New York called Johnson Trading Gallery, Paul Johnson, who's I suppose most well known for his alignment or for his support of Max Lam and Quang Ho Lee. So I was with Paul's gallery for a couple of years. It was amazing. It was amazing. But suddenly it was really about 
okay, we've got to sell some stuff, got to pay the bills. And that comes much more slowly because, you know, when you're selling through a gallery, you know, it's not cheap and the prices are high. And I found it quite difficult to start designing and making work, actually knowing that it's going to be sold for fifteen, twenty thousand dollars That's interesting. So that's a pressure. Yeah, I found it like a real pressure. How do you, mm. is it good enough? Can I charge that? You know, this mm. is just me boiling leather in a, and by then I had a second space down in Bermondsey. Uh, like boiling leather in a tank and it's, you know, handful and it's like, you know, am I an artist? Am I a designer? I'm not really sure. Is that about self-belief, Simon? I think so. I think it's about self-belief and also having a few, <laughs> have a few pieces break on me or with customers, which uh, undermines that self-belief a little bit. Cause it's like, ah, yeah, it does have to function. It can't just look interesting. It does have to have a functional component. But, you know, I've had some amazing supporters, you know, the wallpaper team have, have been endlessly supportive. Around that same time, Hugo MacDonald asked me to participate in the first wallpaper handmade project, which I did with Poltrona Frau. It was a brand new chair designed by Jean-Marie Massoud, which I literally butchered and took apart and <laughs> draped in boiled leather. Not sure what the designer thought of that piece, but uh, wallpaper were <laughs> pretty happy. I was happy. I've always been very thankful and so grateful for the support I've had around me. But it wasn't wasn't easy. And then starting to, you know, trying to make ends meet. So like most young designers, you know, you teach a day a week here and there to help pay the bills is what I tell my students now, you know, don't expect to be living off your design earnings because that's a very slow thing. But I always wanted to balance gallery work with production, ostensibly stuff for production. You know, I was, Tom Dixon was just really gaining traction as a brand then, you know, the cast iron work that was coming out of that studio when the brand, Tom Dixon, the brand was first being established, you know, the beat lamps amazing work, you know, this alignment of industry, British industry with contemporary design. It was all at this kind of time I showed at the dock and when Tom Dixon were up at the dock in Portobello Road, had, I showed the Cleft Oak project, actually, the, uh, the Vauxhall Collector project, I showed it there. So at the time, it was kind of in the air, this kind of bold design work, thinking about industry and this tension between craft and mass production. And it was really, you know, almost tangible, certainly for me. And I felt it was so important. Um, Tom Dixon team, also incredibly supportive and very generous with their time for me. But I wanted to do production stuff as well as just, not just gallery stuff. I didn't want to just do gallery stuff with very expensive price tags, make something that disappears to a gallery in New York. I wanted to do other stuff that's slightly more accessible, more refined, more controlled, more designed for use as opposed to my self-expression, you know, mm. more like a designer, mm. less like an artist. So I wanted to balance that. So I started doing my own little range of pieces for batch production. So I did that for, you know, many, many years as well. And that was started, what started to actually pay the bills. So that with a bit of gallery work and a bit of teaching managed to, you know, keep the, the keel fairly even. Can we talk about your background? Great. You were born, <laughs> you were born in Windsor. I was. <laughs> yeah. What's Windsor like to live in? Wow. Um, it's like therapy. This is great, isn't it? Wow. It's, uh, yeah. it's amazing. <laughs> um, it was good. It was like living in a little Lego set. You know, lived on, grew up on an estate in Windsor. My mum was a teacher, single parent family. She was mother to three kids and a dog. Had a grandma. The dog was a girl. Two sisters. I was the only boy in the house. <laughs> so you're the only man in the house, right? The only man in the house. My father was an aircraft engineer. He was based in Kuala Lumpur at the time, so saw him infrequently. And it was, uh, you know, not an easy child in the, you know, divorced family is never an easy place to grow up as a kid. So, you know, it wasn't without its difficulties, but I certainly wasn't an artistic kid. I envy, you know, the designers that I've heard on your podcast who were surrounded by art and artifacts and visual culture from the get-go. That certainly wasn't a case for me. So you weren't encouraged? Not really. I couldn't draw. And, you know, the school I went to, you know, I felt like you couldn't draw, you couldn't do art. 
you know, I gave up art GCSE because I couldn't draw, I thought. So I was going to be in business or something. My levels took me that direction. Don't know why, because I was terrible at it. We did economics at A-level, amongst other things. I did. How the hell have you found that? Oh my God. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I do look at stuff. What were you like at school? Were you academic? I mean, you didn't draw. No. Family life was okay, but I wanted to be, you know, I had two elder sisters. I was the youngest. I wanted to be not much trouble to anybody, you know. I wanted to do the right thing by everybody, but I didn't apply myself. I didn't revise for exams. I didn't really apply myself at school. I was kind of in the middle. I was always seventh in the class, whatever subject, whatever it was. It always always happened to be seventh, except art when I was bottom. I didn't apply myself. You know, that carried through from GCSEs to A-levels. And then that was a wake-up call. I thought, you know, flunked my A-levels. I, I got, I think I passed one grant. Do you know what it was? Uh, no, I don't. Was it economics? No. <laughs> it wasn't economics. No. You failed economics. <laughs> I got an N in economics. I passed English. Ended up going to Wales. Yeah, University of Glamorgan, right? University of Glamorgan. When I started mm. with Polytechnic of Wales, yeah, in the, in the Rhonda Valley. Did an HND in business studies and then converted that to a marketing degree. So I started marketing because I quite liked advertising and adverts and that kind of thing. It seemed quite cool. You know, 501 adverts and uh, BMW adverts and that kind of thing were all kind of quite cool. And so I um, did my degree in marketing, but then I really did pull my socks up. My dad died whilst I was doing that degree. He died when I was 21. And I thought, I've got to start getting serious about life. This is ridiculous. What, you know, whose time am I, am I wasting, you know? Heavily influenced actually around that time by the movie Dead Poet Society. Oh, right. The Robin Williams movie. Robin Williams movie, you know, and I must have watched that a million times, you know, really mm. bought Thoreau, Red Walden Pond, the chapter where I lived and what I lived for, this chapter about sucking the marrow out of life and living deep and not when you come to die, realize that you have not lived. That really struck very deep in me. This shit matters, you know, what I'm doing matters, really matters. Pull your socks up. Then you went into the advertising world. <laughs> then I applied myself. <laughs> And I see. Okay. I went into the advertising world. Yeah, because it was visual culture. It was cool. It was exciting. It's when it's a time when advertising was staffed by writers, visual artists, sculptors, like creative people were in the advertising industry. I wasn't an artist, so I couldn't go into. I was, I was interested in copywriting actually, but didn't pursue that for some strange reason. You know, it's easy to dismiss advertising, but there's a long history of world-class, revered, legendary artists working in advertising. Well, and British movie directors in particular, Scott Brothers, Alan Parker. Giacometti comes yeah, to mind. Them, yeah. Sculptors, interior designers, interior decorators, mm. fine artists. You've got to pay the bill somehow, right? I was working in advertising and Wallpaper Magazine emerged on the scene. And so I was earning a fairly decent income. And, you know, it's when Hussein Chalayan was, you know, doing crazy stuff and Bjork, McQueen... Fashion was just like incredible, British fashion in particular. It was such a fertile moment, I think, to be in the creative industries in London. One of my clients was Rover, actually, and uh, we did an ad campaign about the new Rover 75 with this amazing soundtrack that Philip Glass did. We, we bought the rights to it. And um, Hussein Chalayan was then a, a graduate designer from CSM, from St. Martin's, and we featured him in some of his work in this this commercial. Uh, I reminded him that, him that many years later, of course, he didn't rem remember me or the ad, but um, it was amazing, you know? 
So yeah, and I was aware of design then because I was in that world, individual culture, buying wallpaper magazine, and then began to look at this stuff and think, God, this crazy Dutch stuff, this chair made of rope using macrame or the Conran shop, you know, these amazing things. So did you enjoy being in advertising? No, I mean, it's it was, as a job for a young 20-year-old, it's a blast, you know, long lunches, clients can be a bit of a pain, but, you know, it's got lovely people, full of people that don't want to be in advertising, actually. I've always gotten really well with the creatives, the TV production people. I always really loved that. I loved the creative process. Painful, but I loved it. I liked working with clients when they were respectful and valued what the agency was telling them. You know, I worked at big, big agencies. But I wanted to make something that lasted longer than 30 seconds. I didn't feel comfortable about working on sweets brands, for example. You know, when the talk is of playground currency and how can you get a sweets brand into the minds of children, I didn't like that. And that's when I began to think, I'm either going to give my soul to this career or find something different to do. And that's when I began to look around and saw a careers consultant that the agency hooked me up with, actually. And yeah, they suggested architecture, woodworking or writing as possible options. You know, they do the psychometric profiling. Woodworking and architecture are related, right? Related, I, yeah. Know. So architecture yeah. thought, you know, seven years too long. Uh, yeah. Writing. I love writing, actually. I don't do it enough now, but I've always enjoyed writing. I probably never finish anything, so I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Woodwork, yeah, I quite enjoy the idea of lovingly carving a piece of timber in the Cotswolds or something. So that's how furniture happened? That's how it happened. So I started doing uh, an evening class at the Mary Ward Centre in Hoban, or an afternoon class, sorry. The agency gave me half a day off a week to go and do woodwork cut joints, wood joints, and uh, learn a bit about, you know, assembling chairs. So did the agency want you to stay or did they want you out the door? Is that the way they're encouraging no, half they a day? I was good. I was good. I'm sure you were. I, was I, don't, the, I don't deny I was, it. I was the golden boy. <laughs> and uh, they wanted me to stay so much so they gave me some freedom, you know. They tried to nurture an entrepreneurial spirit, but <laughs> not so much that you actually leave the agency, the agency <laughs> to do something else. But yeah, they were happy to support my, yeah, which is very forward thinking of them. Well, then I discovered the Royal College and I thought, I want to go there. That is amazing. Right. Look, look at the tutors, look at the work. By that time, Ron Arrow had kind of shaken things up and was running the Design Products MA. And I thought, I've got to go there. You know, I felt I had, I really felt I had something to say. But you did an HND furniture design course at London Metropolitan University I first, did, because right? I didn't have a portfolio. I couldn't draw. Yeah. I wasn't creative because, you know, I've been told all my life I wasn't a creative because I couldn't draw. So my... Well, wife now, my girlfriend at the time was studying uh, women's wear, fashion design at London College of Fashion and would come home with these amazing sketchbooks full of stuff. And I thought, God, that's amazing. And Droog showed that, you know, concept idea can be very valid, can be at least as important as your ability to draw. You know, so if you can have a strong idea, you can express it in many different ways. And so I started going to drawing classes at the Prince's Drawing School in Shoreditch. Every Saturday, that's how I spent my Saturday with my girlfriend. We were doing life drawing. And I thought, actually, I can draw. I can draw. I'm very slow, but I, I can draw. London Met, uh, the HND there. They said, well, if you're willing to give up your career to come and study, we will overlook the fact you don't have a portfolio. I thought, God, that's amazing. You know, you have to take these chances, right? You have to live. I mean, was it difficult saying goodbye to what would sound like a reasonable wage packet. Yeah, it wasn't difficult because I could freelance. So I'd done it long enough to be able to freelance. So... The academic year was what is basically six months of the year. Summer holidays, Christmas, Easter, I'd freelance and save money to pay for my tuition and my course to do the HND. What were you doing in the ad world then, Simon? Account management. So I was client handling. Okay. So I was client yeah, services. Yeah. Uh, you like the go-between, the middleman. You bit of strategy, 
brand thinking, strategizing, client relationships. You're the go-between between the creative departments and the client. You basically sell the idea to the client. You get the client buy-in to the creative vision, the strategy, the script, whatever it is. But the agencies I was at was at it was more, is much more partnership, you know, collegiate. No nasty surprises. You work with the client as opposed to for the client. So it's quite easy to freelance in that, in that world while studying. So that's what I did. And in my first year, I did a, a light that was, what should we say, a homage to Hector Serrano's coat hanger light, the wall-mounted light that he did. <laughs> I gave it a good name and made it a freestanding lamp, and I called it One Night Stand. Hey. And it was basically, the brief was to design, I don't know, it was good. The brief was overnight storage of clothes. Right. So I put it on clothes hangers, which hung around, yeah, on a standard lamp base on a light bulb. And you hung your shirts on that thing, one night stand. And I got to show that in my first year at IMM Cologne. So they had the, I think now it's called Talente or, or something, or D3. I think it became D3 Talents at the Cologne Furniture Fair. Sorry, this isn't London Met. This is you at the Royal College or? This is London Met. London Met. Wow. Okay. It's funny. I always had a weird thing with materials. Even then I made a shelf, another pun, probably because I was a little bit insecure and an ad man. I did a, a shelf made out of books, bookshelf. And it's really nice. I've still got them. A couple are in my son's room now. And I got this beautiful set of books from, you know, that were being unloved at Brick Lane Market, laminated them together, cut them into strips. And you can see the print of the type and the spines with the spine artwork. Really lovely, these shelves. Did the coat stand. And that got selected whilst I was in my first year at London Met to show at IMM Cologne. So I was kind of a year ahead of everyone else in some ways as well. Um, then in my second year, I... <laughs> I was interested in flooding and global warming. It was really part of the conversation back then. This is 1990, no, hang on, what am I talking about? 2003, 2002. And I developed a suite of furniture that ostensibly would join together to make a boat. So if your high street gets flooded, your living room furniture connects together to become a boat and you sail off down the, evacuate down the high street in this boat using two chairs and chairs and a coffee table. So I cold molded this chair using a boat building technique, a wood epoxy resin system called the West system, using a West resin. A bit like Reva speedboats, you know, lovingly, mm. you know. Mm. And um, yeah, I got halfway through that before my time was up at London Met and then tried to apply to the Royal College after that. But I did realise I didn't like making that much, but I loved ideas, designing, and, you know, just having the initial idea and then, you know, dealing with the inconvenience of having to make it somehow. Um, <laughs> but after that, I was cocky and naive and felt, well, I've got a degree in marketing. I've got my H&D, got some sort of portfolio, then I could apply to, to the RCA. Yeah, that was painful, the application process. Because you didn't get in first time, did you? Didn't get in first time. So you must have been very determined to want to go back. Yeah, glutton for punishment. I had an interview, got torn apart by Ron and Daniel Charney in the interview, like literally almost torn apart. And it was a real wake-up call. Again, you know, Simon, what you know, portfolio wasn't good enough. But it was amazing. I was hooked. I, I was determined to go. I thought this is the best place in the world to go and study product design at that time. That's where I'm going to go. That's when I started at CSM, got my portfolio in shape and got in through the skin of my teeth. So got a maybe the second time around, you know, it's like, you know, trying to persuade a girl to go out for a drink or something. Um, <laughs> got a maybe. And then I took my maybe letter on lovely RCA letterhead foiled blocked and stuff and I tore it up made it into a set of worry beads and sent it back to Ron at his studio in Chalk Farm and said dear Ron I hope you made the right decision <laughs> and then eventually I got an offer yeah they made, they let me in <laughs> god I was cocky bloody hell uh, I was going to ask whether it was a leap from doing a, an HND in furniture to the Royal yes. College but yeah it was it was a massive leap I wasn't ready for it and the reasons for not taking me then were that they were concerned I wouldn't be ready for it 
and I would have sunk if I had gone in that then. After a year at CSM, I was a bit a bit more ready for it, but it was still a shock. You know, if you're you know, used to be, if you're quite good, you know, there's always a pecking order in the class and you can kind of tell if you're kind of up there with the top two, three in the class. And suddenly everyone's really good and really confident and boy, they can make stuff and they wear shorts and carry cordless drills and I wasn't <laughs> ready for that. So I would go at the start of a brief and hide in the, hide in the library. I just defaulted to researching the library. And I think it's quite a Dutch way of thinking, actually. I was quite unusual. Certainly at London Met on the H&D, I was the only one working in that research-led way. A little bit because I was influenced by what Christina, my wife, then girlfriend, was doing, you know, researching in that way as a fashion design student. I think fashion students have amazing sketchbooks. They always tend to research really, really well. So I was influenced by what she was doing. I was into kind of weird conceptual stuff in terms of fashion and music. So they were my references, my visual references. So it's very comfortable for me to go and research in that way, look at historical research, library research, a little bit less hands-on workshop-based stuff. But that's when I began to discover this weird uh, way of working with leather. Yeah. Since then, since you graduated and that, that kind of explosion of interest, which we've spent a lot of time concentrating on, how has your work changed? You've collaborated with brands, said in the intro, like Chloe and Lindley over the years. I mean, those early pieces, I remember, Simon, being quite rough and ready. Presumably your process has refined now. I always felt that the rough and ready thing was the gallery part of my brain, working more like a sculptor. And it was trying to push something or discover something. And equally... I felt there was an equally valid outlet that was trying to refine and resolve something in a way that makes it aesthetically and financially easier for people to access. Less elitist in some way, designed really for everyday use, not for use by a gallery or a gallery customer. So the working with brands and the working on my own, you know, I had ended up having a range of pieces that was in, I think, you know, 15, 16 countries worldwide. I was in department stores and interior stores and that kind of thing. And I developed some glass. I was given a space during LDF one year. Lewis at Dallas Barter gave me some space there. And that's when I thought, oh, I've got a space in a trade fair. I'll design some products for a trade fair. So I did some lighting, did some glass. And then it was about a marriage of a subtler, cleaner, more refined expression of my work with leather, but turning the, literally turning the temperature down a bit. So mm. it's less brutal more controllable, more controlled, more refined and making it really more accessible to people. So I, I just really enjoy that balance. You do something that's technical and experimental and has one outlet and you do something that's much more reduced version of that with another outlet. A bit like a, run, a runway piece in a main collection, you know, for a fashion, you know, I've always kind of enjoyed that analogy, I suppose. So then that, that started me working on my own collection and, it, you know, tableware and accessories really, but I became unwittingly because because my process was so idiosyncratic, I became the designer, the maker, the logistics guy, right, the factory guy. You know, I got stuck in this designer maker rut. I started showing at Maison Objet over a period of five years, which was amazing, but brings a whole other level of stress and financial concerns and financial constraints. And you suddenly plugged into this system of having to you know reinvent yourself or do new stuff. You know, the the, the new what's the what's the next thing. And that was, you know, you go, you got to get orders and then you got to make the orders. And I just became my kind of, I was a designer maker, you know, because it's quite difficult to outsource that process because who the hell boils leather? Not many people. So yeah, I became in a bit of a rut in that sense. And I did less and less gallery work because I was, you know, feeding this other machine that was paying the bills, you know, quite comfortably. Um, but it was really taking up so much time. And education 
seems quite important to you. You taught back at the design products course at the Royal College of Art for six years. You're now furniture and product design course leader at London Met. I mean, does working with students, does that feed into your practice? It's fed into my practice in different ways, really, over the years. What I did find and what I did become very aware of, I ran, at the Royal College, I ran a platform, a teaching unit within the MA called Design Through Making. So it's about a very hands-on, iterative approach to designing. I began to become increasingly interested in the pithier, almost more industrial end of the projects that my students were talking to me about. So I'd get very interested in, with one student, bone scaffold implants and how you can adapt pure jet, as in the fossilized remains of the monkey puzzle tree, how you can take that and make it appropriate for bone scaffold implants or conversations about how to encourage people that are susceptible to anaphylactic shock how you can encourage them to carry a syringe with them in case of need. You know, I found those really interesting problems and very difficult problems, obviously, as well. And that really fed into my broader design thinking. You know, I think of myself as a designer. I'm not the leather guy, not a furniture designer. I'm just interested in really good ideas and really interesting ideas and creativity in the broadest sense. And now at London Met, I'm running the product and furniture design degree course. There's great teams, myself, Peter Marigold is our visiting professor. Sarah Van Gameren from Glitheroe comes in. Tim Rundle, who was at Tom Dixon and uh, Conran and Partners, comes in. It's an amazing team, and I just want it to be very outward-facing, very dynamic, very grounded in industry. And for me, that means about that. That means making, helping students become employable. I think it's so important to leave uni with just really good basic skills for employability or self-employability or go on and do an MA if that's what they want to do in, in time. But, you know, that for me is the most important thing at the moment. It's, it's like a design project in itself, you know, designing a course, you know, it's really exciting. It's certainly the biggest thing I've ever designed and will have the most impact, I think, where it's really needed. So that's a really exciting challenge. Mm. Simon, our time is basically up, I'm afraid. Final question, which is, where are your plans for the future, really? Will boiled leather always be part of your life? Yeah, I think boiled leather will always be there. A bit like having a child, I think, you know, it's just always going to be around in the best possible way, of course. <laughs> and I do want to keep working with it. I'm working with Atelier Corbett in New York. I should be working with them when I have time to do it. There is stuff I want to do with the process. Hmm. I've got loads still to explore what I pair it with, how I use it, how I use it to say certain things. I still, you know, there's still new things I want to say with it. And now the story really does come full circle, I guess. I'm really enjoying also working much more sort of strategically or working on much more strategic problems. So the course at London Met as, as a design project, uh, redesigning the course, I'm thinking of it from a very sort of strategic and creative perspective, uh, designing an educational experience for students. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with Virgin Atlantic on something uh, you know, shortly before lockdown, which is really interesting and really like modular systems design for something for the in-flight experience. I'm just really enjoying the synthesis of creative thinking and brand strategy, uh, which probably harks back to my marketing and advertising days, actually. Uh, so synthesizing, you know, the kind of strategizing background and the creative foreground and then making new new possibilities from that. I'm, I'm just really enjoying that synthesis. So maybe that's the way things will go. Who knows? A bit of both, hey? Always a bit of both. Very good. Good answer. Um, Simon, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. And you Ron. can go to sleep in your bed now or whatever it is. Yeah, I'll recover. <laughs> <laughs> to find out more about Simon and his boiled leather work, go to simonhassan.com.
It would be wonderful to see you at the new Material Matters Fair that's running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at London's Barge House, Oxotower Wharf. It's free to come. You just need to register, which you can do by going onto the materialmatters.design page and clicking on Visit. I'll also put an Eventbrite link in the notes for this episode. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of material, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.